0: Please uh, turn your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 4, and it's uh, a joy to be back after a, a few weeks of being gone and to be able to, Lord willing, conclude our the book of Ruth this morning and then return to the book of Luke, again, Lord willing, next week. Here as we've we've gone through Ruth chapter 4, I hope it's been an instructive for you. And As you can tell, we're doing things a, a little bit differently this morning. We're going to be doing our, our offering and, and special music kind of at the end of our service, and uh, one reason we just kind of like to mix things up. Don't want you to get too comfortable there in your nice, cushy uh, stadium seating, stadium, stadium seating chairs, stadium seating chair seats. We don't want you to get comfortable. Uh, also, we uh, sometimes people approach me and say, "Hey, you know, there was the, the offering went by before I was able to put in the care card, but there's this ministry I wanted to be in." So we're gonna. i just gonna encourage you if, if you make sure you have a care card or some sort of little piece of paper to to ride on. There's several ministry opportunities for our church we're going to talk about at the end of the service. And, and just uh, if there's some things you've been wanting to communicate to the staff, uh, make sure this morning you, you get this in here. Uh, maybe there's a prayer request that's been going on or just kind of a praise. You say, you know what, I want, I want the, the spiritual leaders of the church to know about that and encourage you to make sure you get that in the offering plate this morning so that we can know how to pray for you and be encouraged by what's going on in your life. And so uh, we'll talk more about that here toward the end of our time together this morning. But we're in Ruth chapter 4 right now, and if you uh, are able to, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Ruth chapter 4 begins verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Now the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it. For myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in the former times in in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, to confirm a transaction. One drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought. From the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion, and to Malon. and Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Apathra and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You may be seated. May we be encouraged through God's word this morning. Let's pray. And Father, we are so thankful this morning for your Son Jesus, for our Redeemer, and we pray that our lives would be lived in light of redemption. That our redeemed lives would be lives that redeem others. That our the gospel that we have placed our we have accepted as true, and as we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that that gospel would be proclaimed to others through our lives and our words, and help our hearts to be changed this morning through the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. As far as I know, I am the only pastor on staff at Bethany Community Church who has been kicked out of a bar. Some of you have heard the story before, but I think it bears repeating this morning. It happened several years ago. I was on staff as a youth pastor at Bethany Baptist Church, and one morning I was in my office working hard as a youth pastor, and I I heard a commotion out in kind of the larger office area, and so I I poked my head out the office door, and and, uh, someone was was yelling at uh, Sweet Diane, and it wasn't one of the staff people. Uh, It was a person who had come into the church office, and they had approached Diane, and this person looked a little disheveled, and and it seemed like not all the cylinders were firing, and he he was yelling at Diane. what had happened is he had come in asking for some cash so that he could purchase a plane ticket. He said that his mother was dying, and our church was his last hope to be able to purchase a plane ticket and go see his mother one last time. And So Diane asked some questions. She said, now, you know, we can't just give you cash, but can you tell us the airline you need to take? Can you tell us the hospital that she's at? Can you tell us her name? Uh, And all of those questions could not be answered. And she said, look, I just can't give you this cash. And so the person became more and more agitated and and was yelling. And this was also on on a morning that we're having vacation Bible school. And so, uh, Associate Pastor Lyle approached me and said, "Hey Daniel i 'm kind of concerned about the safety of the kids here. Why don't you see what you can do to help this guy?" And I said, What about my safety uh, and Lyle said, You're expendable and so uh I, so I approached the guy and we said, look, can, we can't give you this cash, but can I you know can I give you a meal? Can we uh, maybe just 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 uh, talk for a little while? Is there some other things that we can do to help you? And, and he became more and more agitated. He said, I've wasted my time in coming here. What a what a, what a a joke of a church. I walked all the way here. Can't even get where I need to go next. And I said, look, I can at least give you a ride to where you need to go next. He said, fine. And so we went out. We got in my car and he began giving me some, some very vague directions. And so we began wandering around Peoria. And at one point he said, stop the car. Stop the car. I'm banging on my window. And so I, I stopped the car. And he jumped out of the Car ran across the street right into a bar. And I realized I had just given a man who appeared to be perhaps homeless, certainly some mental issues going on, I'd give him a ride from a church to a bar, which seemed a step in the wrong direction to me. And so I got out of the car, and I, I walked into the bar, and I, I said, uh, th- and as soon as I walked in, that man's uh, eyes met mine, and he began to scream, help me, help me, this man is chasing me, and the, the bartender looked at me, and she said, what's going on here? I said, look, this, this man, I don't think he should be serving him any alcohol, there's some issues going on here, I'd, I'd love to talk with him, and she said, are you going to buy anything? I said, uh, no, she said, you need to get out of here, and so I was kicked out of the bar. Now, I, I, I tell that story because I think it illustrates the, the frustration, the difficulty of, of truly helping people, right? You know, it's been it's become kind of fashionable to to criticize the church for not getting engaged in, in caring for the poor, and people say things, and even Christians say things. You know, uh, Christians care about their their uh, own 401Ks, and they care about their own houses, and churches care about their own ministries and building bigger buildings, but they, they don't care about the, the poor. They don't care about using their money to help people, and there's certainly a, a place for criticizing how we use our finances. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that's not the case at times, and certainly we need to be called to account on that, but let me also suggest this. Compassion ministry is messy, And sometimes, as you engage in compassion ministry, you find you've taken a guy from a church to a bar. And I think sometimes, as believers engage in compassion ministry, they become frustrated. Not because they don't care about people, because it seems so difficult to truly help people. In fact, I would suggest this. If this morning I Put up a family here, and I said, Look, this family needs our our help. I I have no doubt that our church would would step up and help a a family. I have no doubt that if I said, Look, among believers here, if all the believers here gave up their lunch for the next week, uh, the next month, then we'd be able to to provide for a starving family. I, I think that we would all say, Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I'd do that. Of course, I'd sacrifice to help another person. The problem is, it's not that simple. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, here's some money for some food, and, and now all your problems are going to be solved. Mercy ministry, compassion ministry, is messy. The people that you're trying to help sometimes don't want your help. Sometimes they resent your help, and sometimes the thing that they need the most is the thing that they desire the least. And so Christians become frustrated and, and, and helpless sometimes as they try to engage in compassion ministry. The answer, of course, lies in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. And by placing our faith in Him alone, we can receive salvation. We can be reconciled to God, redeemed by God. And as that happens, God's name will be exalted. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is that God's name would be exalted, and as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and our hearts are transformed by the gospel, we begin to, to live out the gospel in other people's lives. We become, in, in a small sense, like redeemers of other people as well, offering God's grace and offering God's forgiveness and offering God's compassion because we've been recipients of God's compassion, his grace, and his forgiveness. But just as the ultimate purpose of our salvation is God's exaltation, so as we engage in redemptive ministries to other people, our ultimate purpose is not their redemption, but God's glory and the exaltation of God, not that individual. So what I'm saying is this, if you, be, if you enter into compassion ministry saying, my goal is to take this person and, and transfer them from a, a homeless person to a person who has a home or a person who's enslaved to various addictions and to turn them into a person who has no addictions and is perfectly living their, their life, uh, my goal is to take a, a person who's been, been struggling with these, these issues and, and make them perfect. If that's your goal, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because compassion ministry is messy. But if your goal is, as I engage in compassion, I want God to be exalted, that is a goal that is achievable. And this morning, as we conclude Ruth chapter 4, we see a happy ending. But let me suggest to you that the happy ending isn't ultimately happy because of what happens to Boaz or because of what happens to Ruth, or, or even what happens to Naomi, the happy ending in Ruth is ultimately happy because God's name is exalted. God receives glory in the lives of his people, and that's why Ruth 4 is a happy ending. As we've been going through the book of Ruth, let me just kind of remind you of some things that we've seen as we've gone through the book of of Ruth that the main theme is that that God reveals his gracious love through the extravagant kindness of his people. God reveals that he is a a, a gracious, loving God as his people practice extravagant kindness. Remember, as we looked at chapter one, we saw that that Ruth had uh, decided to leave Moab as as uh, her husband had died, as Naomi's husband had died, as Naomi's other uh, son had died, she decides, Ruth decides to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says that Naomi's people are going to be her people, and Naomi's God, her God. Naomi, however, is struggling with bitterness. She tells the women as she re- arrives back in Bethlehem. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me uh, Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. And we came to the end of chapter one, and we saw that God's glory is on the line, because uh, Ruth has said, I'm going to take protection. I'm going to seek refuge in the God of Israel. And Naomi has said, the God of Israel is not a God who cares for the widow. God's glory is on the line. In chapter two, Boaz brings Ruth under his wing, he protects her. And as Ruth shows gratitude towards Boaz, Boaz says, No, it's, it's not me ultimately, it's God that's caring for you. And then in chapter 3, he continues that desire to care for her. She throws herself literally at his feet. They're on the threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3, and asks that he would redeem her, that he would step up as a near relative and provide for her and Naomi to bring her into the covenant community through marriage. And Boaz, as we came to the end of chapter three, kind of introduces a twist to the story. He says, actually, there is a relative that's closer to you than I am, a nearer relation to Naomi than myself. And if he'll step up and do what he needs to do, fantastic. But if not, Ruth, I will marry you. I will redeem you. So there's this tension as we came to the end of Ruth chapter 3. They get up from the threshing floor before day breaks. It's still kind of dark, and he tells Ruth to go back into the city. Ruth goes from the threshing floor, which is outside Bethlehem, back into Bethlehem, into the city, tells Naomi what's happened, and Naomi closes chapter 3 with these words, she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And is she right? Well, that brings us to chapter four, verse one. While Ruth has gone into the city, Boaz leaves the threshing floor, and, and he goes out and sits down outside the gate of Bethlehem. You think, well, Boaz, what are you doing? Get into the city, find this kinsman redeemer's house, bang on the door, say, hey, buddy, we've got to talk about something. Uh, When you talk about Naomi and and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, we need to deal with this thing. That's not what Boaz does. Boaz goes and sits down outside a gate. Why does he do that? A gate was right next to the entrance into the city, and when it refers to the gate in Scripture, what it's often talking about is a, a wide open area on the outside of a wall of a city. A city would have been kind of constructed very tightly and compactly, and so right outside the city, the entrance into the city, there would be some benches and and an area called the gate in which they would conduct their public affairs. Legal transactions would take place at the gate. For example, in Proverbs 22, verse 22, the, the writer says, "'Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate.'" There at the gate, a person who is powerful could enact their influence in order to crush the afflicted. And the writer of Proverbs says, don't do that. There at the gate, deal righteously with other people. So Boaz comes to the gate early hours of the morning and sits down, perhaps on one of those benches right outside the entrance to the, to the city and waits, knowing that people are going to be leaving the city, going out this entrance into the fields to work. And sure enough, not a lot of time goes by until the kinsman redeemer, that nearer relation of Naomi, begins to walk out the gate into the fields. And Boaz says, hey, buddy. The text, ESV, it's, translates the word that Boaz uses here as, as friend. But really, it's, it's kind of like a nonsense word. It's like the, the writer put an anonymous word. It's like Mr. So-and-so is what Boaz says, trying to keep this guy anonymous, I think protect his reputation perhaps and so Boaz says hey uh, Mr. So-and-so come on over here and Mr. So-and-so the nearer redeemer comes down and sits down next to Boaz. People continue to go outside the entrance into the fields and Boaz watches the people as they leave and he, he takes some of the leaders of the city people who are designated to have some sort of authority over legal transactions and he calls 10 of these elders over and says hey guys come sit down and so when he's got 10 guys sitting down he begins to talk about what his purpose is, and people are continuing to walk out the city into the fields, and as they walk out, they see, wow, Boaz has gathered a, some sort of proceeding going on here, and some of them stop and watch what's going on. Boaz says this to the nearer kinsman redeemer. He says, now, now uh, friend, I want to talk to you about something. You remember Naomi. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, She is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, do you remember what we've talked before about the land as we've gone through the book of Ruth? I've pointed to Leviticus 25 several times. Let me just remind you of what Leviticus Leviticus 25 says. Leviticus 25, verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is God speaking. God's telling the people of Israel, look, You can't sell, sell your land. What you can do is you can kind of rent it. And the idea is that a person could allow another person to use their land. They could sell the usage of that land for a certain period of time. But every 50 years, the land resorted back to the people who originally owned it. It went back to their families. Kind of an interesting mixture of capitalism and communism here. He says, look, the land's going to go back to the people that originally uh, were allotted it. He says, though... Verse 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer can come and redeem what his brother has sold. And so if a person was going to sell their land, the nearest redeemer had the opportunity to to buy it back and to purchase it. And so Boaz says, look, here's, uh, he says to the kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, he says, "Uh, Naomi has come back from Moab and she's selling this property and you have the first opportunity to buy it. Look what he says, he says, "Uh, I thought I would tell you, verse 4, and say, bide in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But, but if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz has a great reputation. We've already seen that. He's called a a worthy man. But perhaps the more cynical among them thought, ah, Ah, Boaz, now we see why you've been so nice to Naomi and Ruth. Trying to butter up the widow to buy the land real smooth, Boaz. The kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, does a little mental calculation in his head. He says, okay, I can purchase this land now, buy it, identify myself as a kinsman redeemer, fulfill my social obligations, look good in the eyes of these elders and the presence of these people. They'll talk to the rest of the people in the town. My name will will not be dragged in the mud because I'll, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, care for Naomi and Ruth here, purchase this property. I'll also get the opportunity to use the property. And what's more, and here's the kicker, by identifying myself as the nearest relative, when Naomi kicks it, I get to keep the property. There's no one else to claim this, or whenever the year of Jubilee comes along, this can be my property in perpetuity. And so, what does the kinsman redeemer say after making this very logical conclusion? He says, I'll redeem it. Not a problem, Boaz. I will take this one on. Thanks for the offer. And the people and the elders go, yeah, good move, good move, good move. Then Boaz says something else. Boaz says, One more thing. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You can write down, I believe it's Deuteronomy 25, that describes the duty of a brother to marry his deceased brother's widow and provide a a name for his deceased brother. But nowhere does the Levitical law say that a near relative had to do this. Boaz is doing something very interesting here. Boaz is demonstrating a desire to be obedient above and beyond the letter of the law. you look at the Old Testament, you see that people who believed in God often demonstrated their belief in Yahweh God by having a belief that what he said about the land was going to come true. In other words, a person that was passionate about God was passionate about him fulfilling his, his promise in the lands that, land that he had made. For example, in the book of Numbers, you have these, these these daughters of a guy named Zelophehad. And, and the daughters of Zelophehad get really concerned whenever their dad dies, and there's no male descendants in order to protect the family land. They say, look, we want to be part of God's inheritance. What's going to happen to us? And they take the case to Moses, and Moses takes the t- case to God, and God says, hey, those daughters are right on. <laughs> Absolutely, they can inherit the land. But tell them to, to continue to marry within their, within their extended clan here so they can stay within that, 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 that group of people in Israel. People who believed in God had a passion for God's promises to be exalted in the land. And look again at what Boaz says. He says, you should do this to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, That's not a normal thing to be passionate about. It's an extraordinary thing. And Boaz demonstrates a belief in God, in Yahweh God, that is exemplary here. He's not concerned about perpetuating his own name. He's concerned that God's glory would be manifested among all the families of Israel. He doesn't want any family to miss out on God's glory and exalting God. It's a self-sacrificing thing to do, and the kinsman redeemer hears Boaz say that, and there's a couple things that he could have said in response. He could have said, Boaz, please, you and your high and mighty ideas, forget about it. I'm just going to take the land, and we'll we'll do something with Ruth and Naomi. He doesn't say that to his credit. He says this. He says, "I, I can't do it. I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. And he does another mental calculation. He realizes, okay, if I marry Ruth in place of Naomi, marry Ruth, and she has a son, then I've spent all this money taking care of Ruth and Naomi. I've purchased this property, and I never get the property. This kid gets it instead. He does that calculation. He says, no, I I can't. I don't want to endanger my own inheritance. Take my right redemption yourself. And then Boaz stands up in front of all the people, the elders and the witnesses, and he says this. He says, okay, or or first of all, the guy takes off his shoe, and uh, apparently, we we have uh, various witnesses to this, and in this culture, the shoe represented legal ownership particularly of lands, the guy takes off his shoe, gives it to Boaz, and Boaz says this. He makes a legal declaration in verse nine. He looks at all the people standing around and says, okay, guys, you're witnesses this day that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and Chilion and Malon and Ruth the Moabite also, the widow I've bought to be my wife to perpetuate, again, look look at his passion here. I've bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead as inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day, and the people respond with a blessing for for God, for Boaz, for Ruth, and for their house. Let's pause the story there for a moment and, and talk about two principles here. The first principle I want you to think about is this. There are numerous reasons there are numerous reasons not to not care for those in need. There are numerous reasons to not care for those in need. Ignore most of them. There are numerous reasons to not care for those in need. Ignore most of those. In Boaz's day, there are some culturally acceptable things to do. Remember throughout the story of Ruth, what have we seen? We've seen that Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem and they're destitute and no one takes them in. We've seen that, that Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, and people aren't stepping all over themselves to make sure that she's able to glean in their fields. She has to go and ask permission from people, and apparently some people weren't very generous with her. Boaz recognizes the danger that Ruth is in, and, and Boaz tells Ruth, hey, be careful, stay in my field, because there are other people here in our community who will do what? They'll abuse you, they'll taunt you, perhaps uh, even physically assault you. Stay, stay close, stay safe. There were socially acceptable ways of treating the poor and treating those in need, that a person could treat someone that way and suffer no social censure. This kinsman redeemer can say in front of all these elders and the, the people and Boaz, he can say, look, I can't do it, and he suffers no shame in that from those people. Some of them probably thought, good move, because that's a little silly, Boaz. But that's the point of extraordinary kindness. It's extraordinary. It goes against the grain of your culture, right? Here in our culture, there are socially acceptable excuses that you and I can give for not ministering to other people. There are socially acceptable excuses you can give for not being generous with your time and involving yourself in ministry. Hey, you know that... The kids, you know, the kids, we're so busy with the kids right now. I'm gonna gotta bow out of this. Hey, work is just so hectic. I, I don't have time to engage in, in ministry or, or caring for other people. Hey, I've got this this hobby over here, and it's it's very extensive right now, and I just don't have the time to be engaged in ministering to other people. There are socially accepted you can give those excuses and no one bats an eye. there are numerous reasons you can give to not care for those in need there are culturally acceptable excuses you can give concerning your finances i was reading uh, this past week an article about a, a man who's just entered the republican presidential primary and the guy made this this article said he, he made like 2.5 million 2.6 million dollars over this this certain period of time and and in that period of time as he as he talked about his giving he's given uh, now, this is just what's reported, $14,000, $14,600. $14, That's less than half a percent of his income during that time period. And, and it's a man who claims to be an evangelical Christian. And you know what? That's socially acceptable. It's socially acceptable to make, have access to lots of physical resources and give very little, 3 4%. That's socially acceptable. That's a valid social reason to not be involved in caring for other people. There are Christian financial counselors who will tell you, "Look, don't uh, don't give until you have these things taken care of. Give out of your wealth. Don't give out of your poverty. That's a socially acceptable way to give. Unfortunately, it's not very biblical." The point about extraordinary kindness is that it's extraordinary. God reveals his gracious love not through the societal, normal pattern of being nice to people. God reveals his gracious love through the extraordinary kindness of his people. That brings us to the second principle here. Second principle. There are many things in life you can pursue, sacrificially pursue God's glory and your joy. Remember John the Baptist as John the Baptist would say. John the Baptist, as Jesus gains in prominence, John the Baptist says this is the way it has to be. He, I, I must decrease so that he can increase. The kinsman redeemer here in Ruth is concerned about his own name and perpetuating his own name. And there comes a point where he can't pursue his own good and God's glory. He can't pursue his own glory and God's glory at the same time. They become mutually exclusive. And so what does he decide to do? He says, look, I I can't pursue God's glory here. I'm going to pursue and protect my own name. Chrysostom, Chrysostom, the fourth century uh, bishop of Constantinople, was talking about the plea that many give, like like this kinsman redeemer, for not being able to care for others. He says, Chrysostom says, what is the plea of the many for loving their wealth? They say, I I have children, one says, and I'm I'm afraid lest I be, excuse me, myself reduced to the extremity of of hunger and want, lest I should stand in need. I'm ashamed to beg. And Chrysostom tells him this, look, You're comfortable robbing from those in need and not ashamed to beg? Chrysostom says, to be hungry is neither a disgrace nor a crime, but to cast others into such a state brings not only disgrace, but extreme punishment. There are many things in life you can pursue. You can pursue your own security, you can pursue the exaltation of your own name, but you cannot pursue the exaltation of your own name and God's glory at the same time. What you can pursue sacrificially is God's glory and your own ultimate joy. This next week, I just encourage you to think about this principle and how it applies in your relationships with other people. What does it look like to sacrificially pursue God's glory and your joy at school? How many do we have? We just sent away all our fifth graders and under do we have any any uh any uh, anyone under fifteen right now in here you know anyone with kid yeah there you go thank you good job um, you kids know this right you kids know that in your home there's like a best seat in the house right or there's a best seat in the car and a car ride or there's a a best toy that you want to play with there's a a best something right and it seems like in our in our house, there's always a, a best something, and it, it doesn't matter how many toys there are in our house. Amazingly, there's this one best one, <laughs> and there's this tendency to want to pursue the best toy for ourselves. I encourage you, young people, sacrificially this week, try to pursue your, your brother or your sister getting the, the best seed or the best toy, because what's true of you is also true for us as, as adults. <laughs> There's a best something in the workplace. There's a, a best something in our marriage relationship. There's a, there's a best, and our tendency is to pursue what's best for us instead of sacrificially, through extravagant kindness, pursuing what's best for God's glory and our own joy. Let's go back to the story here. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, we've, we've seen Boaz interacting with the kinsman and redeemer there in that, that legal transaction. Then we come to verse 13. And here's Here's kind of the culmination of all that we've hoped for as we've looked at Boaz and Ruth. Verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and so there's this this marriage relationship. Now Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, has performed his redemptive work. He's brought Ruth, who was a widow, who was a Moabite, who was excluded from the people of God, and he's brought her fully in to the covenant community. And they have this marriage relationship, and God blesses the marriage relationship, and it says that God gave her conception, and she bore a son. I told you in Ruth chapter 1, as we began looking at the book of Ruth, that really Ruth, the main character in Ruth, isn't necessarily Ruth. The main character, kind of the protagonist of the story, the one who undergoes the most change, is is not Ruth, but who? It's Naomi. Remember in Ruth chapter 1, the women of the city come to her and they say, hey, is this Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Mara, call me bitter. Now the women at the end of Ruth come to her again, the women of Bethlehem. And as they talk to her, listen to what they say. They say to Naomi, blessed be, not Naomi, not blessed be Ruth, not blessed be Boaz, blessed be the Lord. Because of Boaz's hesed, his sacrificial kindness, his extraordinary kindness, because of Ruth's chesed, her extraordinary kindness, because of that, the women of Bethlehem respond by blessing and praising Yahweh God. Blessed be God, they say. Blessed be Yahweh. Why? Because he has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And they talk about this child here. This child is going to be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For Ruth, your daughter-in-law, she loves you, and she's more to you than seven sons, and she's given birth to him. They look at Ruth's kindness, her extraordinary kindness, and in that they're encapsulating Boaz's kindness as well. And as they see Boaz's gracious dealings with Ruth, they say, blessed be God. As they see Ruth's uh, steadfast love for Naomi, they say, blessed be God. Then Naomi takes this child and becomes like his nanny, his nurse, And the women name him Obed, and he becomes the grandfather to King David. And the book of Ruth concludes with his genealogy. And those of us who are believers, who have the entire scripture, know that that genealogy didn't stop with David, did it? That genealogy continues past David and culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who offers ultimate spiritual redemption. The redemption that Boaz's redemption is just a shadow of, just a picture of. Jesus offers that ultimate redemption, that ultimate buying back in order to bring us into relationship with God. Here's the third principle I'd like you to think about. Third principle is that God reveals his gracious love through the extraordinary kindness of his people. Practice extraordinary, extravagant kindness. You and I have been recipients of kindness that is beyond comprehension. You and I, through the blood of Jesus Christ, have been reconciled to God. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and have entered into a fellowship with God that we could not have entered into apart from the miraculous work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Christianity, Christianity throughout its history has been notable for its kindness. In fact, in the 4th century, Tim Keller tells this story. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Julian ordered hospitals to be formed in various communities throughout the empire, the Roman Empire. And he said this, he said, it's disgraceful that while these christians support both their own poor and ours as well all men see that our people lack aid from us and so from the very early times christians were marked not just for their compassion for themselves but their compassion toward their enemies toward toward those that that were gentiles or unbelievers i was talking with uh, dr mark tatlock one time a uh, provost at uh, moody or at um, masters college and he said this, I was, I was talking to him about, it. I said, you know, Dr. Talek, why do you believe that it is that, that uh, our churches sometimes pursue theology, but it's kind of a theology that, that, that uh, or why do you think that churches that are so passionate about theology sometimes aren't as, as passionate about the practical uh, application of that theology, and, and churches that, that practice this practical application of, of compassion ministry are, are sometimes not very solid theologically? And he said this, he goes, that's not the way it's been throughout church history, He said throughout church history, it's it's been the the church that's been vibrant, that's been engaged in, in mercy ministries. He says, every era of church history, it was the church who was championing the cause of the widows and orphans. As the church champions the cause of those who are the least among us, the world's looks and says, that's not normal. It's not normal to have that sort of passion for people in need. That's that's against the the societal norms. And as a church passionately pursues those things with a gospel focus, rightly recognizing that we do this not ultimately for the people we're helping, but so that God will be worshipped by the people that we're helping ultimately, Our passion is God's glory in this. As we have that focus, God's glorious love is revealed in our extravagant kindness. Compassion ministry is messy, and from the world's eyes, it's often ineffective. But for the believer whose passion is that God's name will be exalted, we have the possibility of success 100% of the time. Let's pray, and then I have a few more things to say. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would be passionate about presenting the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to others. We pray for your strength in doing so, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'd like the uh, ushers to come forward at this time, and as they do, I'd encourage you to take out your, your care card and just kind of think about some of the things that we, we've talked about this morning. I, this past week, I had the opportunity of meeting with uh, Denise Bailey uh, from the Women's Pregnancy Center, and we had a great conversation about where our church is headed in Compassion Ministries. And I wanted to get her perspective on what needs there are, and I, I told her this. I said, you know, uh, we have these these wonderful visions about what we think we can do with this land, and, and if God provides us with a building, and, and uh, I, I've just been amazed at how God's working in the hearts of his people at Bethany Community, just very encouraged. I said, but we, we understand, leadership understands this, and I think we all understand this. Compassion ministry doesn't begin five years from now or 10 years from whenever we have a building. It begins now. And if we don't have now people who are learning how to get engaged in caring for others and, and beginning this process, we can't just start it later when we have a building. There's a couple of neat ministries that I'd like you to just encourage you to think about if God lays this on your heart, availing yourselves of these opportunities to serve them. One would be compassion ministry, and we've been talking about compassion a lot the last month and a half, and you say, look, I'd like to be on an email list or, or somehow engaged in this compassion ministry. I encourage you to write that down in your care card. There's also a very important ministry in our, in our church that, that we need, um, we, uh, need more people to, to be called to, and that's, that's our children's ministry. And every time we have a child dedication, I ask you as a church, are you committing yourself afresh to children's ministry? And, and uh, hopefully, uh, you don't just say, mmm. hopefully you are saying, yeah, we, we do commit ourselves afresh to that. And so if, if God would lay on your heart to be involved in our children's ministry, I'd encourage you this morning to write that down as well. May just say, yeah, I'd like to help out in, in children's church. We have a great need there. We also have a great opportunity in our Wana ministry. I believe we need another 12 uh, people to be called to that ministry. And our desire is not to pursue ministries that God doesn't call us to. And if God doesn't call the workers, we won't do the ministry, and that's, that's fine. But I would encourage you, if God is calling you to that ministry this morning, write that down on your care card as well and say, look, I, I, I have been praying about getting involved in, in children's church or Sunday school or Awana. Please, please mark me down there. Just take a moment and, and fill those out. In fact, even if you you aren't called to any of those ministries, there's another ministry you feel called to, mark that down as well. And if you don't feel called down to any ministry, I'd encourage you just this morning, write down something for us to to pray for or some way to encourage you this morning as well. Just take a moment and do that. And as you do that, uh, Rebecca and Lisa are going to allow us to continue worshiping this morning and encourage you to, to enjoy this.